Hello and welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast on neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of computational neuroscientists. I'm Grace. I'm Josh. And I'm Jan. And for this episode, we're going to be talking about using deep learning to understand the brain. For this topic, we read two papers that came out of a recent issue of Current Opinion in Neurobiology that was all about different ways of using machine learning in neuroscience. And so those two papers are Deep Neural Network Models of Sensory Systems, Windows into the Role of Task Constraints, and that's by Alexander Kell and Josh McDermott. And then the other one is Analyzing Biological and Artificial Neural Networks, Challenges with Opportunities for Synergy? And that's by Barrett, Marcos, and Maki. And then on top of that, we read, uh, so there were these two papers that came out also recently in May of this year, and they use deep learning uh, in a way that doesn't come up in these review articles, uh, but it's like to synthesize stimuli for neurons. And so uh, the first one of those is neural population control via deep image synthesis, and that's by Bashevan, Carr, and DiCarlo, and that was in Science. And then in the same month, there was Evolving Images for Visual Neurons Using a Deep Generative Network Reveals Coding Principles and Neuronal Preferences. And the first author of that is Carlos Ponce, and that was in Cell. Uh, and I think maybe we'll mostly focus on the first of those, uh, but we'll, we'll talk about those as well. So deep learning. Um, we had an episode that was all about deep learning and what it is and different types of it a while ago, so anyone who wants a deep dive can listen to that. So I guess we'll just give a brief description to get things started uh, so that we can talk about how deep learning can be used to understand the brain. We'll let you do that, Grace. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So basically, deep neural networks are artificial neural networks. So they're made up of artificial neurons, which are these individual units that were originally designed to mimic the way that real neurons work, but in a really, really simplified way. Um, And so basically you just hook a bunch of them up and there's weights between them and when you want your deep neural network to do something, you change the weights between the artificial neurons so that it gets better at it and that's called training or learning. To be slightly more precise about it, I guess, the relevant parts are that you have a uh, a bunch of different neurons and to a first approximation they are linearly combined and then you apply some function that like thresholds them basically uh, when passing them to the next next unit. So a neuron, its firing is determined by the sum, weighted sum of a bunch of input neurons. And then its firing is that sum thresholded basically. Or there are a few other kinds of activation functions that you can apply. And I guess the deep in the word deep learning refers to the number of layers. If not, it's shallow learning if it's just an input and output layer, for example. I'm not sure what at what stage it becomes deep. I think I think nowadays deep learning is just all of neural networks. Like if you had a three layer neural yeah, network, yeah. people would still call it deep learning. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of them are like eight layers, twenty layers upwards from there. Mm. So practically, that's what that's what's called deep learning, I guess. There are plenty of settings nowadays where people are using quite shallow networks, and people still call for it deep sure. learning. Right. Yeah, that's pretty most most cases. But anyway, I mean, I guess in in these settings, we, we actually do see genuine deep networks, the ones we're talking about. So, Yeah, so I guess we can also say, like, the idea of artificial neural networks came up a long time ago, like in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and um, it had, you know, its seeds in actual neurobiology, but then it kind of pretty quickly diverged and became more part of, like, computer science or even, like, statistics, machine learning, when that became a, a term that people used. 
Um, and so they were like on their own separate paths, uh, artificial neural networks and neuroscience were. Um, and even within the like computer science path, the artificial neural networks became not popular for a bit because they were hard to train and they just weren't working well uh, compared to other methods. So, but then recently with increased compute power and uh, data, deep learning became popular again amongst computer scientists and amongst uh, like computer vision people and um, people using it as an engineering tool. And then because of that, it reemerged in neuroscience as a way to understand the brain. Right, so I guess like starting with this uh, first paper that's focusing on sensory systems. So to, to be honest, I mean, most of the work that's been happening in this intersection of deep learning and neuroscience is, is about sensory systems. So this review covers a lot of what's been done. Um, and uh, that's mostly all been done in like the past five or six years, I guess, is, is when this really started taking off. Uh, but they start by explaining the more traditional approach in sensory systems of how to understand and what they're trying to understand. So they talk about how they're trying to understand and replicate or model both neural responses and behavior. So like it, how an animal responds to an image, uh, you want to capture the neural responses when you're recording from neurons, but also the actual output that the animal makes in, in response to the image. And they talk about ideal observer models as the traditional way of doing that. Did like. What did you guys think about ideal observer models? Have you heard of these before? Like, is this you considered... mean as a, as a term? You mean or... yeah, like is yeah. this like do you consider this like a canonical part of neuroscience? I, yeah, I consider this a fairly canonical part of. I mean, it, it also comes up in psychology, so it's not just neuroscience, but in in for example psychophysics, it's quite standard to think of. Uh, yeah. Or 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 simple psych experiments, it's quite standard to think of there being kind of like the right behavior. Right. So like if it's a perceptual task or if it's a simple decision making task, you can essentially specify a model for what like a perfect person would do in that setting. And you, if it's I mean, it's it's usually called an ideal observer model when you can fully specify both the setting and you can kind of analytically derive what the optimal behavior is mm -hmm. for that setting. And I think that this is for a while been a standard part of a certain certain subset of psychology and the related subset of neuroscience where they're doing the same kind of experiments they would do in psychology just also recording from the brain yeah yeah i, I would i would say this i hadn't actually really seen the term ideal observer that much but obviously um like sort of models that are optimized to do a certain task or something is something which i come across a lot in psychophysics like you said but not so much in other types of neuroscience um like maybe you know I, I was sort of more familiar with like you know circuit models and this kind of stuff right um, yeah I feel like it is it is because of this like overlap with psychology these ideal observer models are very much on like sensory perception yeah. side of things and to the like for the most part they mainly just explain behavior they're not trying yeah. to be a model of what neurons are doing as Josh said they're just trying to capture the um, optimal way to solve the problem. The weirdness that I had around ideal observer models when I was first like getting into this field, um, I should say that like this area of um, using deep learning to study sensory systems is like exactly what I do, <laughs> which makes this episode hard to do because we usually only talk about stuff we don't know about. That's just our style. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can do that here now as well. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> um, I want to talk about how I was confused about ideal observer models. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. So 
I had heard it thrown around a lot, and the thing that was weird to me is that it felt like, like under any circumstance, you could just derive the ideal observer model. It was just like, oh, well, you can always compare it to an ideal observer model, so you can see like how human behavior is compared to the optimal behavior that you would see in an ideal observer. And it just felt like there was some magical procedure that by which you could derive how to behave optimally. And I was like, wait, if that, like, why isn't life easier if there's like some set of steps that you can just do yeah. and that it works? Um, but then I realized that that's, it's not the case yeah. that you can always find this, and that's part of the problem, is that it only works under really simple circumstances. And actually, the vast majority of the time, the um, when people say ideal observer model, I think they just mean like a Bayesian model. Yeah. So then the steps are a bit clearer about how you would define the problem and then uh, derive the optimal solution. Like there are kind of steps for that, uh, which we talked about in our, our episode on Bayesian modeling. But uh, before that became clear to me, I was really confused about how there was just always a way to optimally solve things. But, you know, of course, the reality, as you've alluded to, but not explicitly said, I guess, is that, like, it's, the, it's, only, ex- it's only extremely exceptional cases. But, like, when people talk about it, because they design their experiments to be those settings, right, there's, like, there's only, like, a, a very, very tiny subset of all tasks that you can define for which there's optimal behavior well specified. But people use precisely those tasks, which I think is a big source of confusion in a lot of respects because it's also the case that experiments then are non-naturalistic in this very predictable way often where people simplify them so that they can figure out what the optimal behavior for that task is. And, yeah, that obviously means that people are only studying a very narrow range of behavior. I, one, I mean, this is maybe a slight a bit of a tangent, but one issue then is that you, there seems to be a, a drive then when you're interpreting the behavior of the human subjects in these experiments to like try to like see how close they are to the ideal observer or something um, in, in ways that often seem to just hide or average out a lot of the different strategies and stuff that humans are taking because of lots of different other um, reasons that are just yeah, not controlled I, by the task. I agree, um, yeah. The sought-after conclusion is that humans can be interpreted as uh, optimal or almost as good as the mm-hmm. ideal observer model. And, I mean, I think in some cases that's reasonable, but in other cases uh, the task is simple enough that humans may not like be doing that naturally or may not generalize in complex settings to that near optimality because we don't even know how to define optimality or it would be difficult to produce an artificial system for more complicated tasks that behaves optimally. So like humans obviously aren't generalizing this optimality. Humans are optimal in very simple cases where they can learn very quickly what the optimal behavior is. Yeah. Um, To be fair though, I guess um, one thing that ideal observers are successful at in explaining certain types of visual illusions and this kind of stuff, um, I guess, which is talked about in the, a little bit in the review. Um, Yeah. They can account for certain um, visual illusions. Because normally these are set up in like some simple case where yeah. the input is some um, simple visual stimulus and then you report what the output is. So you can have in the model, the model can display behavior that looks like it's falling for an illusion. But yeah, I would say that the issue is though that you are kind of forcing this complex system, which is the human brain, into this model that's only doing this one very simple thing. And then if it's not perfectly optimal, you're like, well, it's almost optimal. But like that almost could hold like a lot of really interesting information about the ways in which it differs from the optimal strategy. But so, yeah, so they bring up ideal observers, uh, I think largely as kind of a, a way to introduce them so that they can say that deep learning could be like 
the new ideal observer model for tasks that you can't analytically solve uh, for. So we were saying how this forces you to use these really simple tasks because that's the only thing that you can make these models for. But with deep learning, as um, we alluded to earlier, you can train these models to do much more complicated tasks like um, full object recognition and other visual tasks like that. So it this could be the new thing to compare humans to. But the the weird thing about that, I guess, is um, the when you use the Bayesian approach in these simplified settings for ideal observer models, we say that that is optimal, like provably optimal. And then we call those models normative in the sense like this is what the brain should be doing. This is the best behavior. I don't hear people calling these deep nets normative models of the brain. Do we think that they're normative models of the brain? I mean, I don't know if it's the deep networks that are normative models. I'm very, very much in agreement with the, the, these, this, this sort of thesis being put forward in this review, that the new version of what amount to, you know, let's say artificial baseline models for comparison in neuroscience and psychology experiments ought to be basically what machine learning can produce, which right now tend to be neural networks trained in certain ways. And I, I don't know if it's, I, I don't know if it's right to think of it as, the model just the model like the model means in this case like both the neural network architecture it's usually a neural network though it doesn't have to be the the, the architecture of, of the, the sort of model as well as its training procedure so it's not just like a six layer convolutional neural network used for image classification it's that network trained using a certain algorithm on a certain data set and so like you could you can also say like well if i have a neural network of a certain structure trained to do image classification on ImageNet, which is a particular data set, versus the same architecture trained to perform some other task, like be the perceptual front end for an artificial agent navigating a maze in a virtual reality environment. You would say that those are different models. Yeah, I would say that most people would definitely not say they're normal, normative models of the brain. But I think a lot of people would sort of at least implicitly agree that they're normative models of how to solve this particular image recognition task. Okay, um, well, yeah, so, but like, because normative has to mean with respect to something. Like, the ideal observer models yeah. are normative models for how to do some very simple visual discrimination tasks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, are these normative models? They're not optimal. I know that well, much. But yeah. I, th I think that's part of what is, is the issue, right? Like, the reason they're not precisely normative models is because usually there's a task, and the task is challenging enough that we don't even necessarily believe that the system, the synthetic system that's produced to approximate a solution to that very difficult problem is close enough to optimal to like be comfortable saying that it's a good model. So like take image classification, which a few years ago you would have said, oh, the best state of the art models are not as good as humans. And now you can say, oh, the best models are as good or in some cases better than humans on certain data sets. It, 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 because it's this narrow range of behavior and because it's not like provably optimal. It's not the normative model. It doesn't tell you exactly what the right solution is. It's more like there's this space of candidate very good models that you hope that there's some commonality amongst when you want to compare humans or animals to their performance. So does this mean, though, that we're giving up on the option of having normative models for complex tasks? Because we're going to say there isn't a single optimal solution, so we don't have normative models anymore. Hmm. This is a big question. Yeah. <laughs> Throwing us a curveball, Grace. Yeah, yeah. So, like, were people really 
hoping to achieve that in the first place. I mean, I think it, it wasn't like the people doing the Bayesian set approaches were really trying to like massively ramp up the complexity anyway, were they? I think they would have if they could. You're saying would people have built um, ideal observer models that could solve a task like object recognition and images the same way a neural net does? Mm. Like if I think if they could have done that with Bayesian approaches and proved the optimal way, I think they would have done that. And, and I think people are still doing that. Um, I mean, I, I recently heard of work uh, in the lab of Paul Schrader and colleagues that was attempting to scale up essentially kind of normative behavior uh, in, in a setting where that would have maybe historically seemed computationally intractable, and they figured out a way to yeah. make it tractable. The, the, the caveat in that setting as well is when you scale up Bayesian methods, you also sometimes will make approximations, right? Insofar as there becomes numerical difficulty to optimize something, right? The way you solve for difficult solutions to Bayesian problems might be with a variational approximation or with Monocurve Chain Monte Carlo, which is like a numerical approximation technique. Um, so there are different ways of approximating the solutions, even in the cases where the Bayesian machinery would seem to apply. Yeah. And it can be complicated, computationally quite difficult to, to, to saturate, you know, get, get, the, get the really optimal inference or model in, in, in that case. But that seems to kind of get at the crux of why this mightn't be what people should aim for anyway, which is that like, you're always going to have to make assumptions as you increase the complexity of your task that in order to get like some sort of normative model and like the assumptions are going to be possibly more and more difficult to like explain or to like think through um, in a sort of community or whatever. So yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, I mean, I think I agree. I think I don't think it's a new realization, really, though yeah. deep learning is just making it more appealing to move past it despite this already old realization. It's, it's, it's not necessarily new that you should realize there are limits to what we can analytically or, or sort of tractably compute completely in yeah. terms of tasks. The new part, I suppose, is that like we can quantitatively model behavior for problems that are more difficult than historically was the case. So like trivially, that's true for like image classification problems, like identify what object is in the scene was historically not possible to any reasonable degree of performance. And now that's like almost a solved problem, which is awesome. Um, but then it, it means that we should now take it for granted that we won't be able to like describe fully or even achieve total optimality on many of the problems that we care about. So what we want instead are not perfectly optimal normative models, but we want models which are relatable to, to human or animal behavior, and then the neural representations that support that behavior. Yeah. So I would say, and I think this is a theme about um, the intersection between deep learning and neuroscience and how deep learning is affecting neuroscience, is that the presence of these models is complicating the narrative that was like traditionally how neuroscientists approach things because it is changing what it means to build a model that can like perform the best or, or do the task compared to what we, we used to do. Um, but maybe we should talk about the actual uh, studies that are covered in this review so that people have a better understanding of, of the way in which it affects well, things. One more, one more point I'd like to bring up, and it comes up in the reviews, so this is not like a total deviation, but is, is the point that when it's the case that you have one of these not totally optimal models and you're trying to relate this so let's say you're interested in how you, humans identify objects if you do this analysis in year x where year x is a time at which the model hasn't been totally perfected um, and people are still like kind of rapidly engineering it 
then you're going to get a certain result. You're going to say like, oh, the human brain represents things kind of like this model. And people actually did this even before deep neural networks were doing this, like SIFT features were a thing. That's a way to do computer vision with these particular features that you look for in the image. And when that came out, people thought like, oh, this is a biologically plausible way of performing feature extraction. And so people wanted to relate how the brain does object recognition to the kinds of features that were extracted by this algorithmic procedure. I think a, a legitimate question as a scientist trying to do this work is, am I looking at a moving target? If every six months or every two years or however long it is, the models that are the best models of a given task change, does, does that undermine the conclusions you derive from comparing animal or human behavior against yeah. these things? And I guess the, the counterpoint to that is one hopes that like for a task, there are common representations or features that are learned by many different models. So you're hoping to make comparisons to the parts of this that are kind of almost model agnostic, which is like not totally realistic, but you, you might expect that there are certain features that emerge reliably when training a variety of models on a given data set. Well, so let's talk about what the actual models in use today are doing and how they are compared to the brain. So in uh, this review, most of the work that's discussed is using a particular type of deep neural network called the convolutional neural network, uh, because that is most of what the work in the field has been on. And so relevant to this discussion of using deep learning to understand the brain is the fact that the architecture of these particular networks is inspired by the visual system. So in the visual system, uh, it was discovered in like the late 50s and 60s that there are neurons that respond to, to different features in primary visual cortex. It's lines and edges that are oriented a certain way that will make the neuron fire. And the people who discovered that were uh, Hubel and Weasel, and they called those simple cells that respond to lines. And then there was another set of cells that they found which also had uh, features that they prefer, like they had, they had a particular orientation of a line that they would respond to, and they wouldn't respond to different orientations. Um, but uh, the other set of cells, the complex cells, didn't care as much about where that line was in the visual space, whereas the simple cells, the line had to be at a very particular location. So this was like the two types of cells that were discovered in cats in the 60s. They got turned into a model of visual processing where basically that pattern of having simple cells and complex cells just gets repeated over and over. And that is basically the inspiration for what are called convolutional neural networks today because a convolution uh, looks for a particular pattern in an image. And then the pooling layers, which are also part of these networks, they pool from a bunch of the simple cells so that they also respond to particular patterns, but they pool over spatial locations. So they respond the same at different spatial locations. And then you just stack that over and over where you have more simple layers looking for patterns in the neural activity of the complex cells that were uh, made from the pooling layer before over and over and over and over. Um, really over and over a lot uh, today because some of these networks are like over a hundred layers deep and they're doing this over and over. Um, Right, so it's relevant that, that they're inspired by the visual system, and then once you set up the architecture that way, then you train, so you make sure that all of the features that the 
simple cells in the system are looking for, you learn those weights so that they're looking for features that are actually helpful when it comes to recognizing objects. That's usually the task that they're trained on. So you put in an input image and uh, the network needs to say what object is in it. Uh, and you do that and then therefore, like we know two things about this model. We know that its architecture is inspired by the brain and we know that it can do a task that brains can do, which is object recognition. And then the question is, what else can we say? Because we put both those things in. We put in the architecture and we trained it to do this task. So then people kind of want to see other things that weren't explicitly put into the model that happen to come out and match the brain in some way. And then I think they'll feel more comfortable that this is like uh, doing the same thing as the brain. So some caveats are, and we've talked about this in, in other episodes, but the idea that the way that the network is trained to perform this task may or may not be biologically plausible. There's a whole other literature on whether or not, for example, the backpropagation algorithm that's the way by which these networks are trained is biologically plausible. But I mean, I, that, I think in the context of these studies, that's not really an issue because I mean, like ideal, the way that you fit or train an ideal observer model or something is not relevant either. And so they're really just treating it as a final, you know, a final, if, Yes, think, you're, 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 you're concerned about the training yeah, yeah. model rather you just than say the like, training process. I think it's almost even better to say like we optimize this like architecture to like yes, work on this task and then like let's look at the architecture or whatever. I think that's a very fair point. For some reason, other people sometimes don't, but I think that they're confused because I agree. It's like a parameter fitting technique. Um, however, this paper does bring up studies where they uh, tried to actually model the process of humans trained to do very particular visual tasks and how the visual system can get specialized for those. And then they train neural networks to do it, um, which is assuming some sort of equivalence between right. the training. But that is a little bit more questionable. I yeah, agree. and I think, it you know, I think it depends a lot on the task as well. Um, if you're doing, maybe if you're doing something like transfer learning or something where you're showing one data set and then another data set and you're seeing like how quickly it happens or something, then clearly then you have to think about that type of optimization or training that you're doing on the, on the network, but yeah, for this object detection or yeah, yeah. So, so I, I would agree, but I, I and so I think I think it, it's clear that there exist settings for which it doesn't matter, and there also exist settings for yeah. which the training does matter. So we're talking about how we know that the architecture and the the overall task is the same, and then you can compare more things uh, between the networks to see if they work the same as the brain. I think the first order thing that people compare is just more details about the behavior. So usually the way that works is through analyzing the errors because there's only one way to do something correctly. If you categorize the image correctly, you did it correctly, but there's multiple different ways that the model can make an error. Um, and so people uh, tend to compare those things as like kind of further evidence that they're working the same as humans do or possibly monkeys or something like that. Um, so like, will they confuse the same two categories that humans do? Um, like, will they confuse two different dog breeds in the same way that humans would confuse those dog breeds? Or do they classify a picture of a dog and say that it's a fork? Because that would be like something a human would never get confused about. And broad strokes, they do align, I guess, are the findings, though not image by image. It, it said in the review that the models and humans don't err on the exact same images, but they will have similar cross-category confusion. 
And you can also put noise into the image and see how performance falls off with noise or when you change the view that you're seeing the object from, where non-standard views are harder to classify. And there's some match between the models and, and humans in that respect, though I think there are some differences. They talk about how the models seem to rely more on texture than shape when they categorize objects. Um, I think it's also the case that things like when you put in just like pixel noise, like salt and pepper noise on an image, humans are... I, think more robust to that than, than the models usually are. So these are just like fine-grained ways to compare the performance and gain more confidence that, that things are working similarly or identify the places where they aren't as like places for improvement. So when you talk about like uh, cross-category confusion, I guess an important thing there is to make sure that another baseline model is is performing worse than, sorry, than say the neural net models. Because I mean, there's going to be just the natural statistics of the images and the categories which which lead to like predictable um confusion in the different categories if you know what i mean yeah yeah and they say in the paper that like to some people the idea that the models air the same way as humans like that comparison like wouldn't isn't necessarily convincing because maybe that's just a consequence of doing uh like being good at vision yeah, is that, yeah. but that seems crazy to me. Like, no, this is good evidence <laughs> because there are models, like even within the world of, of convolutional neural networks, there are different models with different architectures trained in different ways on different data sets and they'll have different behavior. And so, you know, logically a model can perform, can have high overall accuracy, but still make errors that are not like human errors. So like, yeah, it's totally informative. Yeah, and, and actually an interesting point is that there, the more recent models have gotten in superhuman performance right and they actually tend to get more difference to the way that humans err basically um, from what i remember yeah so so. yeah so there are definitely models that their architectures also to look at you would say this looks less brain-like than a standard convolutional neural network and they do get better performance than humans can on object recognition and I think a, a big way in which they differ, which we can get into now, is when you do compare the activity of the artificial neurons to activity of real neurons mm-hmm. um, when a brain and a network are shown the same image. So that's another way that things are compared. Once you like know that the behavior is similar, um, you can show both systems the same image and actually compare like not neuron for neuron exactly, but one way is you can try to use the activity of the artificial neurons at a particular layer in the network to predict the activity of a real neuron, and that works pretty well. And uh, in addition to that, the the deeper the deeper you go into the network, which way is deeper in networks? <laughs> the further you go from the image, <laughs> uh, then that is akin to the further you go from the retina in the brain. Uh, basically. So the earlier layers in the network uh, are better predictors of earlier areas in the visual system, and then later layers are better for later visual areas. So in that way, this is like more, again, reassuring that uh, something similar to biological vision is happening in these models. So the idea that the visual system is like a hierarchy in this way of this kind of repeated process, do multiple layers of roughly the same computation, that isn't new. Deep networks didn't prove that about the visual system. But they say in this review that potentially they could be used to kind of reveal hierarchies in other areas that aren't necessarily thought of as hierarchies. If you can build a neural network that has a hierarchy of layers and then match each layer to a particular brain area, then you could say that that kind of hierarchy is at play in the brain. And the authors of this paper have applied 
uh, this modeling, the modeling that's normally used for the visual system, they've applied it to auditory categorization tasks, still using a convolutional neural network, and show that um, the earlier layers in the network correspond to earlier layers in the auditory system, and then later layers correspond to, to different areas in the auditory system. So it's kind of showing the same principles at play in a different sensory system. And just to be clear, for, for those who are curious about the technical details, they basically make an image of the sound, and that's how they, they run like standard visual processing algorithms on it. So the other thing they do with this auditory model is that they train it both on speech recognition and um, like music genre classification, I think was the other test. And they have a model where the first few layers are like, it's just the same model for both tasks. And then they try different architectures where the model kind of splits off and can have two different pathways uh, so that it can do these two different tasks. And then the question is how early or late do you have to do that split? Like how much of the model can be shared between these two different tasks? Um, and they found that you can have like half of the model be shared between these two different tasks. So there's just kind of some universal auditory processing things that need to happen before you do something more specific with that information is kind of the interpretation, uh, which is interesting because it gives you a sense of like kind of how modularity arises in the brain and, and um, why you would have different brain areas specialized to different things or not. Um, we can move on to the next paper, which is like, how do you dissect these models and how can you dissect them in a way that could also be used to uh, like apply to the brain? Because uh, that's not trivial, because when you have these models, you have full access to the whole system and you can do any kind of experiment you want, uh, which isn't true in the brain, of course. Uh, so the, the next paper from this uh, issue is looking at kind of things in common that are done to both systems to try to understand them. Uh, because there is a, a decent contingent of people in machine learning who want to try to understand these systems for the purposes of machine learning, um, but it could help neuroscientists if they come up with clever ways of understanding them that could be applied to the brain. Even though you have, superficially, it would seem you have access to the whole system, it, there's, it's not the case that for a trained neural network, direct inspection works. Right? You can't just look at what causes a neuron to fire. It still requires like essentially tools or visualization techniques or an optimization procedure to determine what will maximally drive an artificial neuron somewhere in a neural network. Right? It's, it is only the case that you can kind of just inspect for the most peripheral, like closest to the input layer, because essentially what you're looking at are the features that it looks for in the raw image. So those are kind of like, kind of visually interpretable. Yeah, but I mean, the re like that this is a difficult problem, I think is quite beneficial to neuroscientists because then lots of machine learning researchers are also thinking about this. Well, so I, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think a naive view might be, oh, if you have the trained neural network, you've got the whole thing. Yeah. And in some ways this parallels, for example, the debate around connectomics or yeah. the value of connectomics. In artificial neural networks, we have the whole system, kind of like genomics, right? You have the whole thing, it's, it's fully characterized. And that's a useful starting point. You can actually begin to do science with that, but it isn't adequate, right? It's yeah. not the case that direct inspection tells you what the solution or what, what it's doing. Yeah. You can't just look at a fully trained neural network that ostensibly does precisely what you want it to do, where you have all of it. You have to then analyze it. And it turns out analyzing it is incredibly difficult. As people do it now, at least, 
they, they will do specific targeted analyses trying to figure out what is going on in the neural network activity that supports the computation that you know that it can do. Yeah, and so as you said, you know, with the first layer, you can visualize things directly with other layers in the network. There are methods that you can use that optimally activate an artificial neuron by designing an image that will do that. Because you have full access, you can do that automatically. But then you do that and then you look at those images and you think, okay, these are like weird subparts of images. So, you know, that's something, I guess. But it is the case that neuroscientists who study the visual system have been trying to find out what optimally drives neurons in the visual system for a lot of a lot of the history of visual neuroscience. <laughs> um, and just more generally, there's this belief, not not really a belief, but kind of an implicit striving in neuroscience that like, well, if we know like how all the neurons are connected and all of their inputs and all of that stuff, like that'll help. <laughs> we're given that now and we're given the ability to know what optimally drives neurons uh, and we're still confused. So I think it's a really important thing. This, yeah. the, Aside from the actual scientific knowledge gained by having these models available, just the cultural shift of being like, wait, what do we even mean by understanding? What are we trying to do? What would we do if we had the things that we said that we wanted for so long? Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, and I mean, from, from an outside perspective, it almost looks like this is like fast forward to the future of neuroscience. As a neuros, like being trained as a neuroscience in, I don't know, between 2000 and 2010, you probably thought like, oh, I want to record from as many neurons as possible. I want to uh, uh, get the like full connectivity of a whole subsystem and then we're going to analyze it and that'll be an exciting problem and uh that's that's true i mean those aren't the right things to be striving for within experimental neuroscience i think still but at the same time for a bunch of people who were trained in computational methods uh during that period of time and shortly thereafter you're, you're people like us are now confronted with this problem and actually can just try to tackle that problem directly like in parallel with neuroscientists trying to almost catch up to the setting that uh, neuroscientists have been striving to obtain. Basically, we, we have the same problem now in, in, in functional systems which are complex and solve problems. And basically, the we now have to figure out how to deal with that. And so I, I think it's clear that many people who have a background in neuroscience have also taken an interest in studying these artificial systems for obvious reason, because it's like exactly the problem that neuroscientists have been excited for and, and hoping for, uh, but it, it's, turning out to be an extremely challenging problem. Weirdly, though, I get the vibe that, so I think you get this from both sides. Like, there are people who use these deep neural networks purely as engineering tools who would think that it's silly to really try to understand them. Like, whatever, they're trained to do the tasks that they're trained to do, and they do it well enough, and whatever. Like, maybe they'll try to understand the behavior in a broad input-output way, but not what's going on inside. And so those people would be like, why are you bothering trying to understand that? That doesn't make sense. It's going to be so hard to make sense of what's happening inside these black boxes. They're the behaviorists of artificial intelligence. <laughs> they are. <laughs> um, and then, but also weirdly from the other side, I feel like, like there are neuroscientists who think that trying to understand deep neural networks is not a worthwhile endeavor. And some of them are like that because they think these aren't brain-like enough to be worth it. But I just don't see how you could look at this and be like, oh, that's going to be too weird and difficult to understand. Why bother? And then go to your lab where you have brains, real brains, and be like, yeah, I, I can get a handle on this. <laughs> like, if you can't understand these networks, which are much simpler than the real brain, what hope do you think you have in understanding the real brain? 
Well, I mean, I mean, you could essentially not be convinced that they're like a suitable enough representation of what the brain is doing, right? If you're just like, not convinced about that, then it's not worth the effort of trying to. Build I agree. To do that. Or yeah. So if you think they're not good enough representations of the brain, you think it's not worthwhile to understand yeah. them because they're not going to tell you something about the brain. If you think they're not good enough representations of the brain because they're simpler than the brain, but you also think there's no chance of understanding them, that's confusing. If you think, oh, you yeah. could understand them, but it's not worth it because they're not like the brain. If you think you can't understand them and they're simpler than the brain. Yeah, but I mean, I think kind of all of the negative views, except for the AI behaviorist view, are really untenable. Like, it's clear that they're enough like the brain that developing analysis techniques based on artificial neural networks is a useful exercise for neuroscientists. If you don't believe that, I'm not sure what grounds on which you believe yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it's useful exercise for some neuroscientists. Maybe, like, you know, not, not all neuroscientists. No, not every. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so. no, no exercise is going to occupy, like, 100% of neuroscientists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> fine. Well, maybe, you know, understanding the brain, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I, I mean, I think the, the sort of AI behaviorist view is legitimate, which is to say it's a black box. It was trained to do something. It does that thing. But even that's not from a sort of engineering ethics safety standpoint considered to be adequate. Because if you've got this black box that you're going to deploy into the real world, you have to minimally yeah. have kind of black box style guarantees. Like, I know it won't fail in this in this regime, or I know it won't do something totally crazy or racist or something yeah. like that in, in this regime, yeah. um, which can easily happen, happen accidentally if you treat it yeah. exclusively as a black box. So there's a conversion to f- convergence of interests and in yeah. understanding. So like a bunch of different people want yeah. to understand. Yeah. You, you might have the view that like people are getting a little bit too ahead of themselves and like maybe analyzing like the weights or the actual, even the response to different stimuli or whatever, right? As opposed to what, without having really done a full exploration maybe of all the architectures and all the learning rules and stuff that actually lead to these different things. So I think there are some studies which kind of are referenced in the review, which are kind of getting at this now, which is like, let's like look at like a family of different architectures and family of different ways of training them and see how actually representative the models that we were studying until now are of like the sort of optimized um, suite of tasks or whatever. So that's... uh, This gets back to the point that I brought up much earlier uh, today, which is that like... There are, let's say, two options for, for how you want to approach this. One would be, I want to develop a method that when we train a system we care about, we can rapidly deploy this method to analyze what the neural network is doing or what units in it are responding to or something like that. So that's like developing the methodology by which to probe specific neural networks. Yeah. And then the other thing is the more scientific version. If you want to do science, understanding how these neural networks represent things, like kind of generally... You have to do it in a way that transcends individual realizations of models yeah. that, that do this. If you train many different models of the same architecture on the same data set, do they converge to similar representations? Yeah. If you train varying architectures on the same data set, do they converge to similar representations despite having architectural differences and so on, right? Like yeah. h- h- how similar are different models trained on the same architecture and how similar are the same model yeah. trained on different data sets that are broadly similar. Yeah. So for example, if you train, I mean, people have done this, if you train on images of scenes versus images of objects, do you get similar features and up to what point in a, in a network? Yeah. How well do those features transfer from, from one data set to another? Like when you want to retrain on a different data set. 
Yeah, so, I mean, this is, it's like ongoing, I guess. I mean, yeah, yeah, variants have been done because there's already been, within machine learning, like the evolution of different architectures that are popular because they get better performance. Um, So that's changed over time, and then neuroscientists have just pulled from those architectures uh, to change, like, what they're using over time and what they're comparing to. But, yeah, it's, like, actively explored at this time. Yeah, yeah. To see how those those things matter, and then what they can tell you about the brain if you do find differences between those. Like if you change the architecture and it's a better match to the brain, then does that actually tell you something about the brain's architecture? Yeah. Um, but we can talk about some of the methods. Kind of assuming a trained model, what are the methods that can be applied to understand it? They have this list of certain methods, and those are ones that can already be applied to both uh, the brain and neural networks and then they also talk about how there are methods that that at this point are kind of only available in the systems that we have full access to um, but how you could be creative and trying to find a way to do the same thing in the real brain so the first one they talk about are um, receptive fields like documenting what the neuron responds to i will say my notion of the word receptive field is that it's the spatial location that the neuron responds to but they're using it to mean all of its response features like the features that it's tuned to like what kind of shapes it responds to as well as the location that it prefers so they're just saying like document what the neurons are most active in response to versus not active and that could tell you something because that is basically what a lot of systems neuroscience has been for many decades And doing that in like these models of the visual system, you get a fair match. The receptive field properties of neurons in a convolutional network are similar to those in the visual system, broadly speaking. Uh, And then the next thing is ablations, which is like neuroscience 101. Like that's what people have been doing for a long time is you just like scoop part of the brain out or (laughs) burn it or, you know. Cool it on. Yeah. Just get rid of it. Genetically. Yeah. Well, now. Blast it with light. Anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you get rid of stuff and then you see if the system still behaves the same way or not and then if it doesn't you're like hey that's important Um, but they're talking about in the context of uh, the models you can do that in a more fine-grained way because you can get rid of individual artificial neurons um, based on their response properties even and they talk about uh, a study where they deleted neurons um, that had different strengths of selectivity like how strongly tuned they were and like the naive expectation is that the ones with really selective tuning are the most important. And if you get rid of those, like the uh, network won't be able to classify anything anymore. But they didn't find a strong relationship from for overall performance. Um, you can get rid of highly tuned ones and it doesn't matter or there wasn't a strong relationship between that. And this might worry some neuroscientists. <laughs> it does. Uh, it complicates the narrative. As yes. Because <laughs> yes. uh, you, yeah, the, the standard neuroscience belief is tuning is relevant for function. But to be yeah, fair, this well, was also found recently in real large-scale neural recordings as well. So it was um, from the Allen Brain Institute. Joel, I don't know this. Joel Zelberberg. You know Joel? Oh, yeah. But yeah. what is this study? Um, untuned but not irrelevant, um, which that the untuned neurons are, are contributing to, to coding. Uh, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so there's the fact that untuned neurons are contributing and highly tuned neurons aren't necessarily contributing that much. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it, and it depends on pre- precisely what the task is. For discrimination, you might expect that like things that have some sort of mixed selectivity or are differentiating at the boundary between different things might be particularly relevant if there are subtle distinctions yeah, between yeah. things. Well, they do say that the selectivity isn't like correlated. If you ablate highly selective, it's not correlated with overall performance. But there were like particular categories that were 
dependent on highly selective neurons. So it's the fact that they were looking at overall performance that there was really no correlation, but you could find subcategories where there'd be stronger correlation. Uh, and then the other thing that they talk about is dimensionality reduction, because in these networks you have, you know, thousands and thousands of artificial neurons. The brain has a lot of neurons. Basically, if you're recording from all these neurons, what do you do with that much data? You want to, you know, squeeze it down in, so that you're only looking at the features of the data that are really relevant. And so there are many mathematical techniques for reducing dimensionality that all come with their own kind of assumptions about what's relevant. Um, but you can apply either of those, or you can apply these methods to either the artificial neurons or the, the real neurons. Um, and try to get at kind of what is the, the core of what's making the system work. And that's interesting to me. This came up both in the ablation section and the dimension, dimensionality reduction section, this fact that machine learning people want to reduce the size of these models so that they don't take up as much memory. So like a, the most basic convolutional neural network has like 60 million parameters. So that's 60 million values the computer has to store to run this thing. And uh, so it's, uh, there's incentive to make them smaller, but you still want them to work just as well. And so this idea of pruning the network so that it has fewer parameters and fewer um, units in it, but still works as well, is big in machine learning. But if you can identify what's important to the network in this machine learning sense, that would be really interesting to neuroscientists to know what's important, because they also want to know how to reduce the dimensionality of their data and find out what's the most relevant part. There was some study that showed that most weights in an artificial neural network can be predicted by knowing just 5%. I mean, I assume it's a very specific 5%, not like a <laughs> random 5%. Um, but that was surprising to me. And also something about you could like delete 85% of the weights and it can still work. Um, yeah. So yeah, so apparently they are highly compressible. So there should be some low dimensional thing to be found in these networks and then ideally also in the brain. Yeah. And then the other thing they talk about is um, looking at the representation and comparing that across different networks, across time, across training. Um, so these are just different methods by which you can say, are two systems doing the same thing? Uh, so one of the common ones that, that comes actually from the neuroimaging literature is representational similarity analysis, where you kind of, for each model or for a brain area or for whatever, you can kind of make a barcode of, of that model, like an identifier of how that model represents stuff. And that is this matrix of how correlated its response is for two different images. So for each image pair, you have a correlation value. And that'll tell you, like, this brain area thinks that these two images are really similar. And a different brain area could represent them as being very dissimilar. And so it's this, like, kind of unique identifier of how an area represents the inputs. And then if two areas have, or a model and a brain area have the same of this barcode, then they're representing these things similarly by this metric. They said that they, through this analysis, they could see, uh, some studies showed that lower layers stabilize first in their representation. Uh, and then later layers in the network keep learning later into training. A nice thing about seeing that is, well, I sort of maybe realize that like the sort of neural network models are kind of combine two you know two different types of neuroscience that don't usually talk to each other that much which is you know human imaging neuroscience and the rest of sort of circuit neuroscience in ways that i think most like i think most types of models generally belong to one camp or the other um is my impression maybe i'm wrong yeah no for sure um, this like putting things into abstract representational space means that you can compare across different specifics so yeah. you can 
make these kind of representational claims by using recordings from individual neurons, by using voxels from fMRI, by using artificial neurons in a model. They can all be put into the same space. Yeah. So another interesting thing that they talk about, which is like, aside from, you know, these are tools that can be brought over, there was kind of, to me, it was like a cultural element of uh, machine learning has standardized data sets that everyone compares to directly. And they're saying that neuroscience could potentially benefit from bringing that in uh, because uh, it's hard at the moment to even judge, you know, progress in neuroscience without some sort of standard thing that everyone's comparing to across time, across labs, that kind of thing. I, I think the caveat is it depends on whether you're talking about for analysis techniques or whether you're talking about for like experimental protocol. Like on, this, on one hand, you want experiments to be relatively standardized so that people can compare them. On the other, you want people to be doing fairly different things because if you've got like a fairly narrow protocol that many people are reproducing, you may not be learning as much as uh, a bunch of people each doing their own thing that's more exploratory. Uh, whereas for developing methods to analyze neuroscience data, yeah, it helps to have standardized data sets, I think. I definitely don't think we're, we're the neuroscience is has a problem with too little diversity of, of, of experiments and uh, tasks or whatever. Um, no, I, I, I agree, but it, it has to be very worthwhile. Like neuroscience, neuroscientists have to have decided that a certain experiment is extremely worthwhile for it to be worth it for five or 10 labs to be regularly reproducing that result. Even if you had a benchmark data set, for example, so what, what would the goal be? Would the goal be to build models of the brain which best predict human performance and best predict sort of different neural like like this brain score thing that they talk about is that essentially what you mean yeah so like something like that where there's neural data and you know the images that were shown to the animal and you have recordings from neurons in the visual system and then yeah the goal is to to best predict that that could be one thing i think it, it anything that it's just here's the clear task this is something we say that if we do well on this we're advancing neuroscience so let's everybody work towards this exact thing. But so, so I feel like this has happened for certain ML style problems within neuroscience. So for example, for calcium imaging data analysis and for spike uh, yeah, yeah. people have made standard data sets and people have engineered a way at it. And but that, that's, they turn out methods, to be the methods. No, that's, yeah. this is the point. I, I think that that's, that's the case, right? And we're at, I don't know if we're at the point where we, we need like a lot of experiment, uh, sorry, a lot of theoretical uh, digging in around sort of narrow task paradigms or narrow data sets. I think you probably just want a little bit of both because people just kind of wander off in their own specific subtask directions and stop studying the thing that they were originally working towards. And so it is hard to see what were the things that worked. So I think it wouldn't be bad to have a few examples of just like, no, we're going to, you know, hammer away at this until we solve this thing. Okay, um, maybe let's move on to the paper that synthesizes stimuli, because this is a nice um, synergistic relationship between deep learning and neuroscience. So as I said before, you can take these models of the visual system and you can use them, if you have some recordings of a real neuron to the same images, you can use that to make a model that can predict how uh, an, a real neuron will respond to a new image where you like put the image into the model and then it directly can predict the, the activity of the real neuron. So if you have this model, now you can run it kind of in reverse um, and use techniques similar to how you would visualize the uh, things that an artificial neuron likes that it responds to the most. You can 
use a similar process to try to create stimuli that are optimal for this real neuron because you have this full end-to-end mathematical model that can do a good job of predicting what the real neuron, uh, how the real neuron will respond. So um, that's what this paper did where, uh, yeah, they, they built these models based on some recordings of real neurons to predict their activity and then they could create optimal stimuli for these neurons and can uh, show these stimuli uh, to the animal and record from these neurons and actually observe that it, the stimuli they designed make these neurons fire far above uh, their firing in response to any of the normal images that they had shown. So they are making new stimuli that are more effective at driving the neurons than any natural images that were, were shown to the animal. And the stimuli look pretty freaky. It's kind of cool. Yeah, I was trying to think of how to describe them. They're kind of like textiles, like what you yeah. would see at like a modern rug store. Yeah. It's like rectangles that aren't quite, you know, rectangly and swirly patterns and it's stuff like that. It's very much like that, like that um, neural art sort of, like the deep dream But it's thing. not. It's better. Yeah. I mean, yeah <laughs> it's be- like smoother and nicer and that less creepy, true. I would yeah. say. Yeah. I found them quite pleasing to look at. And I think if you took some drugs, they'd be even prettier to look at. To me, that was like, oh, I bet these are the right stimuli. Because like, I yeah, like looking yeah. at them. Yeah, <laughs> so they're, they're like kaleidoscope textures. Like something like a, st- a still frame of what you would see maybe in a kaleidoscope. Sure, yeah. They're grayscale, but they're, yeah, that's the patterning. So drifting gradings are what's used to drive the primary visual cortex, which is like moving lines. Um, and when I look at those, I'm pretty locked in. I feel yeah, like, yeah, yeah, this is what... This yeah. is what I'm designed for. Yeah. <laughs> so this passes that test for me. I, I suspect my brain just doesn't function properly. Because I find <laughs> neither drifting gratings nor these stimuli particularly engaging. <laughs> okay, well, did so we talked about how there were two papers that did something similar. The other one doesn't use the same procedure. Um, so the other paper uses a generative adversarial network as like a, a way to represent the space of natural images. And then they use an evolutionary algorithm while they're recording from real neurons. And they just kind of move through this space of natural images and then try to find a space that really drives the neuron that they're recording through. So in a way, it's like a trial and error procedure. Um, but they don't just pick like random pixels. They have like a more sophisticated way of generating the images that they try. But all this to say uh, that I found the images that that paper created really creepy to look at because they are... Um, they really, they look more like the, if you've seen the deep dream kind of images, like weird, like kind of facial features just creeping out of nowhere, like eyes covered by things and just parts of stuff that seems important, but not a whole thing. And it really freaks me out. But apparently it also worked. They were able to drive their neurons yeah, above. Yeah, those, those ones, those ones resonate for me. I don't, <laughs> not, I don't even seem as creepy. Like to me, they just seem like evocative of the kind of features that, I think are like from real images. It's yeah, like, it's but like, it's like a Frankenstein of real images. Yeah, it's, it's horrifying. It's like a, it's like, it's like a coarse kaleidoscope of real life, <laughs> which to me just seems, yeah, it seems. I look, you, you can glance at it and not notice something's wrong. Like, oh no, I could not. No, no, like, <laughs> like if you like are scanning and passing. But it's, it's weird that they both arrived at such different looking images, though. Well, a a general adversarial network does produce these kinds of, like it has to be within the statistics of a natural image, whereas these patterns would never come up. And also, technically, it is different brain areas. The first one is V4, which is known to respond more to simpler shapes and lines. And then the the general 
the generative adversarial network paper is IT, which is later. That's a good point. Um, I guess the question is like, what is the, the purpose or what is learned from doing this? And I would say, like, as I said before, visual neuroscientists have for a long time tried to figure out what drives neurons in different brain areas. And in the first paper, they even use a set of stimuli that had previously been identified as like good drivers of V4 neurons, and their stimuli can drive the neurons well beyond what those stimuli could do. So they're surpassing traditional neuroscience at this game of finding the thing that drives these neurons the most. Um, and then the question is, what do you do with that? And I think, I mean, it is informative when you visualize features in an artificial neural network. I think people did find that informative to see like the first papers that did that got cited a lot because they were like, oh, this is it. Like this is what's going on inside these networks. So I think having a method to do that is definitely useful and could be applied in more specific cases where you want to know neurons in particular circumstances, what is driving them. So I think it's a good tool to have and it's impressive that they can do it because it does require holding on to the same neurons for long enough to run this yeah. algorithm to fit the model and make the stimuli. So they do it over the course of two days. So you do have to have the same neurons two days in a row, which sometimes is easy and sometimes is less easy. But overall, I think it's a good tool to have. I'm not sure what I've learned from it though. Yeah, it feels more like this is a, a methods paper, kind of yeah, like this yeah. is a new method, use it to understand what you wish to understand. Mm -hmm. And the a point that they make is that it also is validating of these models as good models of the visual system because they are generalizing outside of the natural image space that they were trained on. The fact that they're producing these not natural looking images of like shapes and spirals and kaleidoscopes and that that still is true, like they are still good at predicting the response of the neuron in response to these images that are very outside of the training set, like that's good for the model. I do have to talk about the fact that throughout the paper, rather than saying uh, they showed an image to the animal or uh, presented an image, they refer to them as luminous power patterns. And at first I thought like, oh, that's just like the nerdiest way to say an image <laughs> ever. Um, but they explain later that they refer to it as that because they're trying to make an equivalence between this method and other methods of neural manipulation like optogenetics. Like, oh, you apply like a pattern of light in optogenetics to stimulate certain neurons. And this could be thought of as something similar because through this method you can target the activation of particular neurons in the visual system. Because what they're doing is picking individual neurons to drive really strongly. They also have a method where you can pick an individual neuron to drive really strongly while keeping other neurons suppressed. So it really is like particular to that neuron. It's particular to that neuron within the small set that they're simultaneously recording. And like exactly. obviously a bunch of other stuff is going on in the brain. Yeah. And they have to train on that single neuron for a long time in a particular setting, I guess. Well, they have to get responses to normal a set of normal images to, to fit the model. Yeah. But again, it's all happening within the course of two days and probably could be condensed. But so that, the point is that another use case potentially for this method is neural manipulation in a way that we more traditionally think of it. Like I want to do an experiment where I activate certain neurons and then see how that impacts decisions downstream or whatever, whatever. Um, you could think of this as precise neural control in an animal system like a monkey where we don't have really good tools for that right. at the moment. It's confusing because uh, you don't know what is happening all the way like prior to this visual area, how you're impacting things. When you do optogenetics, yeah, exactly. you're targeting that area and that neuron directly. You don't have to get to it through a bunch of other neurons. 
So I don't think it's a clean way to do that, but if there was some reason why you wanted to, to activate a particular neuron for something other than trying to understand how it responds to things, then you could argue that this is a way to do that. So any final thoughts on deep learning to understand the brain? I would say that I'd like to see other successes in deep learning, such as language translation yeah, and modeling sure. and reinforcement learning for playing games and stuff. Those models exist, and I want more people to compare those to the brain because it really is a lot of vision at the moment. Yeah, and what I liked about the the first one is the kind of focus on tasks as well, um, the ability to like actually look at complex tasks. And so I think hopefully that can encourage neuroscientists along with, you know, knowing they have the methods to to sort of generate and analyze lots of complex behavior and also to maybe even fit neural nets to like perform well on these tasks is kind of exciting, I think. All right. Till next time. Hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast, give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks.